Welcome to Skim This. We hate to say it, but school is right around the corner. So this week, we'll talk to an education expert about the challenges ahead for this school year, including the one thing everyone's talking about, teacher shortages. It's really exhausting to be a teacher right now. They have this gargantuan task of catching kids up, and it is exhausting. Also on the show, we've got the context on some of the week's biggest headlines, from over-the-counter hearing aids to the primary election results in Wyoming. And speaking of elections, political misinformation is on our minds as we head into the midterms. And with TikTok slaying the social media game right now, some people are sounding the alarm about the political content on our For You page. And we'll close out by taking a look at the unexpected sport that's on the rise here in the U.S. Not football, pickleball. Let's just hope there's not a dill shortage that follows. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we have some breaking news out of the NFL. The quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, Deshaun Watson, has been suspended for 11 games and will be coughing up a $5 million fine. So why is he sidelined? Watson has been accused by more than two dozen women of sexual misconduct during massage appointments. The player has never been charged with a crime, but because of those allegations, Watson was investigated for violating the NFL's personal conduct policy. Earlier this month, a disciplinary officer, jointly appointed by the NFL and the Players Union, gave Watson an initial suspension of six games and no fine for violating that policy, which the NFL appealed to ask for a more substantial punishment. And today, Watson's story reached a conclusion, with a longer suspension and a multi-million dollar fine which will be donated to groups that work to prevent sexual assault. This was one of the biggest tests of the NFL's conduct policy ever, because we're talking about one of the league's biggest stars under a microscope. Not to mention, the league's had a sketchy history of how it's actually enforced the personal conduct policy, and sports fans have been calling on the NFL to step up and hold players accountable. As for someone else who will be sitting on the sidelines, on Tuesday, there was another round of primary elections. And over in Wyoming, voters gave a major figure in the GOP the boot. Liz Cheney, who is the sole House representative for the state, lost her re-election campaign to her Trump-backed rival, Harriet Hageman. Even if you aren't from Wyoming, you probably know Cheney's name by now because she's been the top Republican on the House panel investigating January 6th. And this primary election now ends Cheney's three-term run in Congress. In her concession speech, Cheney said she felt her role on the January 6th panel influenced the primary. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the votes. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear, but it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. 
But she also teased that this defeat is the start of a new chapter for her. She told reporters she's considering a presidential run in 2024. And early on Wednesday morning, Cheney also converted her campaign committee to a political action committee. A spokesperson for the campaign told reporters that the PAC will be used to fight Donald Trump's potential presidential run and, quote, the ongoing threat to our republic. And speaking of politics... Okay, here we go. It's now law. President Biden signed on the dotted line, and the Inflation Reduction Act is now law. Quick reminder, the Inflation Reduction Act is the $740 billion spending bill that's putting money towards green energy initiatives and reducing the price of prescription drugs. The bill also wades into taxes and says companies of a certain size now have to pay a minimum 15% tax. As for whether this bill will live up to its name and reduce inflation, well, that's TBD. But some economists aren't optimistic. For more on how this bill will affect you, head to the link in our show notes. For our last headline, you might want to turn up the volume. There's big news tonight for people who have trouble with their hearing. The FDA will make hearing aids available over the counter without a prescription as soon as mid-October. In a historic move on Tuesday, the FDA has cleared the way for hearing aids to be sold to adults over the counter without a prescription. Hearing exams and hearing aids have historically been really expensive. Getting hearing aids can cost anywhere from $1,000 up to $5,000. And they usually aren't covered by most insurance, including basic Medicare. The FDA said it made the changes after seeing studies that estimated 30 million Americans experience hearing loss, but only about one-fifth of them get help for it. And health experts have long said that hearing loss contributes to cognitive decline and depression in older adults. The FDA's new rule means consumers can buy cheaper hearing aids online and in retail stores as soon as October of this year. And besides expanding access, the FDA and the Biden administration hope that the new rules will drive more competition in the hearing aid market. One retailer that's already stepping up is Best Buy, which says it's launching a line of hearing devices in the fall, along with in-store hearing tests. We can see it now. This year's hottest Black Friday deal is hearing aids. Picture this. Representatives from seven different states and Mexico, all in the same city, arguing around the same table over water. Specifically, the growing water crisis out west. But as a lot of meetings go, those representatives couldn't come to an agreement. So this week, the federal government had to step in and made some of the biggest changes to water policy in years. We'll explain what's changing and how this could affect you all in 60 seconds. The Colorado River flows all the way from the Rocky Mountains to the Gulf of California in Mexico. The river and its two reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, supply water to more than 40 million people in seven states and part of Mexico. Cities like Denver, Salt Lake, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all get their water from the Colorado River. And without it, 
life in these places would look really different. Water from the Colorado River also supports the multi-billion dollar agricultural industry. In fact, agriculture accounts for 80% of the water usage from the whole river system. That water gets used to grow winter vegetables, including broccoli, kale, cabbage, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts. So this river is a total lifeline. But now, a two-decade-long drought brought on by climate change has threatened that water supply. So the federal government asked the seven states who receive water from the river to figure out how to cut their usage by two to four million acre-feet of water. For context, one acre foot of water is enough to supply two to three households for a full year. So when you multiply that by two to four million, that's a lot of water. But spoiler, those talks to agree on cuts didn't go as planned. So the US Bureau of Reclamation says it's going to have to step in and take more drastic measures. And at the same time, the Bureau declared this week for the first time ever that Lake Mead has reached what's called a tier two water shortage. That declaration triggered a new round of water cuts imposed by the federal government. So starting in January, some places will be mandated to turn off the tap. Arizona is taking the biggest hit as its annual water apportionment from the river will be reduced by 21%. Nevada and Mexico will also have to take around 7-8% to 8 reductions. Meanwhile, other states who get water from the river, including California, were spared any changes, for now. Still, despite all this increased urgency around this water crisis, some experts argue that these cuts aren't big enough, and that state officials need to focus on reducing their usage even more. But as we wait for more restrictions to be announced, people out west will be feeling the squeeze. Residents in California were already told to drastically reduce their household water consumption earlier this summer, while people in Arizona and Nevada will now see their own usage restricted too. Not to mention, farmers in the agricultural industry will also be taking a hit, which will impact food supply. So even if you don't live out west, you could see the effects of these water policy changes wherever you live from sweet green to your grocery store. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. With midterm elections less than three months away, Tis the season for political misinformation, particularly on social media platforms. But this November, we aren't just dealing with the usual suspects of Twitter and Facebook. We've also got TikTok, the new kid on the social media block. This will be the first major U.S. election cycle since the app really blew up in the States. And it turns out that TikTok's got a lot of the same problems that its peer platforms have when it comes to political misinformation. To learn more about what's going on on our feeds, we called up an expert. Hi, my name is Abby Richards, and I'm an independent mis- and disinformation researcher who focuses on TikTok. Richards told us, it's not that we haven't seen misinformation on TikTok before, it's just that now... 
we're suddenly taking TikTok much more seriously than we did. For a very long time, TikTok was just waved off as this dancing app and not as a serious political instrument, which it is. TikTok has always been a political space. As long as there are people using the platform who care about politics, it's going to inherently be a political space. So how is this misinformation actually showing up on the platform? So far, reporters have seen videos talking about COVID-19 vaccines and conspiracy theories about election fraud from the last presidential election. And unlike Facebook and Twitter, which tend to have more static images and text, it's a lot harder to weed out misinformation when it's in video and audio form. So TikTok's content moderators have a harder time catching misinformation. Richards told us that when you couple the difficulty in weeding out lies and conspiracy theories with TikTok's scary powerful algorithm, you get a platform that caters to spreading misinformation. The algorithm itself pushes out the content that receives highest engagement. And engagement reigns supreme over accuracy. And because of that, it's not necessarily always the videos that are the most truthful that go viral. I often will describe it as like a three-dimensional meme because you have the image portion, then the added audio portion, and then the text that's overlaid on top. And all of those things can interact in different ways to sometimes create a phenomenal meme and other times <laughs> spread misinformation. On this show, we've already talked about how misleading TikTok can be in other contexts, from shady SpawnCon to BS health trends and fads. But when you add politics into the equation, it gets a lot messier. Our information constructs our reality. So when that information is not actually truthful, then we have a really distorted view of reality. And obviously that's going to affect our politics. If you're thinking, how bad can this actually be? Well, we've already started to see the effects of TikTok on elections outside of the United States. A new study from the Mozilla Foundation, which is a nonprofit that focuses on the internet, found that leading up to Kenya's general election this month, TikTok allowed over 100 videos of ethnic hate speech, incitement of violence, and political disinformation to swirl around the platform. 100 videos might not seem like a lot, but they were viewed millions of times. And that put a lot of people on edge in Kenya, which has seen violent protests after past elections. Meanwhile, over in the Philippines, creators posted videos saying the former dictator of the country, Ferdinand Marcos, wasn't all that bad, despite his track record of sentencing over a thousand political opponents to death. These videos actually helped his son win the country's recent presidential election in May. And while the Philippines and Kenya have different electoral systems than we have here in the U.S., we do have a track record in America of letting misinformation impact our elections, like back in 2016. So we asked Richards, knowing that we've seen misinformation spread on TikTok in other countries, what does this mean for our elections here in November? We certainly have seen a lot of misinformation about the election, particularly the 2020 election being stolen, still thrives on TikTok in conspiracy communities and in like far-right communities. It's definitely something I worry about. 
are people getting accurate information about whether or not they're eligible to vote when the cutoffs are for registration? What exactly is on their ballots in the first place? And what are the repercussions of those ballot measures and those elections? I don't know if that's information that's always being delivered accurately. I mean, a lot of the users of TikTok aren't necessarily old enough to vote, but it's still going to be constructing their political reality and how they engage with American politics as well. But wait a second. Is there anything TikTok can learn from other social platforms who've tried to clean up political misinformation? Getting ahead of the misinformation can help because it builds up that resiliency. If you let people know, hey, heads up, you might be encountering misinformation that will say X, Y, Z, here's why it's not true, or here's the tactics they might be using. There is some evidence that that can help us build resiliency. I also am someone who advocates for ecological literacy. What I have found successful is to say, this is fake, and here is how it's functioning in a larger ecological context. As for what TikTok has already done, during the 2020 election, TikTok claims it removed over 300,000 election misinformation videos. It also partnered with fact-checking organizations, blocked deepfake videos, and has since cracked down on some controversial search terms. Looking ahead to the 2022 midterms, TikTok announced this week that it's banning influencers from posting any sponsored political content. The company also said it'll be launching an election center to show info about polling places, ballots, and candidates. But we should point out, organic content about politics isn't banned, and that could still contain misinformation. And more often than not, that organic content is what circulates on your For You page, which is where most TikTok videos are seen. So while this week's announcement from TikTok is a step in the right direction, some are still anxious about what could happen in the run-up to the election. Especially since, at the end of the day, TikTok is a business, and users and their attention are the product. They've learned not to allow like the worst examples, but sometimes a lot of the gray areas are still overlooked. As much as I would love to be optimistic about this one, I think that as long as we're getting our information from companies that care more about their quarterly gains than they do our well-being, misinformation will always thrive. So if you're scrolling and see political info that you think is sketchy, Richards has got some tips on what you can do to stop it from spreading. There are functions for reporting something as misinformation. If you're not seeing comments that are already calling out the fact that it's false, I do think there is sometimes benefit to adding a comment to provide context, especially if you have someone like somewhat of a following, because that will be pushed to the top for other people. And then the last thing would just be like, don't engage with it. Don't share it. Unless you're providing a fact check on the video, like the comments will also just be fueling it too. So take that into consideration. And if you really want to be ambitious and you haven't found a fact check that exists for it yet, like start just sending the link out to reporters. Just start DMing them any misinformation you see. Be like, go, go do it. Fact check it.
back-to-school season this year isn't all fresh crayons and new notebooks. This fall, after two tough years for students and teachers, it seems like everyone is on a different page about heading back to class. Students had different experiences during the pandemic. Some kids barely missed any school, but some kids were in schools that shut down for months, so they're further behind. That's Jill Barche, an author for The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit news organization covering all things education and data. Her organization has been studying what's going on with student learning loss and teacher burnout in public schools. And there's good news and bad news. We have data showing that some students didn't miss a beat and some students lost six months of instruction and fell far further behind than they were before the pandemic happened. In the case of some of the youngest kids in the data, third graders, so they were in first grade when the pandemic first hit and they were just learning to read, we see that their rate of learning is back to pre-pandemic levels, but they're not catching up all that much. We think that with reading particularly, there's something about learning to read and needing to be in person and to see people's lips so that you can connect sounds to words and the way people look when they say words. There are some real young kids that really lost out on some critical in-person time, and it's just going to take extra time for them to catch up to where they have been historically. Essentially third-grade students are learning okay, but we aren't making up for the time we lost fumbling with remote school. And Barche said there are other age groups that are struggling like this too because they missed out on crucial building blocks. Middle schoolers are another group like that. In the case of middle schoolers, one theory is, is that adolescence is a critical time psychologically to make social connections. And if students were isolated, they weren't able to make those social connections, and that impeded their brain's ability to learn, with math in particular, because there's so much more behind in math. If middle schoolers missed a lot of instruction in sixth and seventh grade, that means they might have missed some key instruction with fractions, with percentage, with ratios, with rates. And it's really hard if schools are just jumping ahead to pre-algebra to make that stuff up. There's holes in their knowledge. As someone who very rarely uses fractions in my day-to-day, what's the big issue with skipping over stuff? It is easy to think, well, who cares if they do fractions in sixth grade or seventh grade, right? They'll just catch up eventually. But the problem is, is that we're promoting students onward to the next grade. And they might start to get discouraged when they're in high school. And more kids might drop out of high school because they can't pass certain math tests. Some kids might feel discouraged and not go to college. Or kids who will go to college, they'll be put in remedial classes because they can't meet the prerequisites for college credit-bearing courses. So they might drop out of college. And a lot of economists have been trying to calculate what will happen to the whole U.S. economy if we fail to catch kids up properly. And there's one estimate that it could mean $2 trillion less in lifetime earnings for all of these kids that don't catch up. Okay, so the stakes are pretty high. But what are schools doing to try to get kids up to speed? 
Barche said some schools are adding extra time in the form of lab class or full-on review classes to cover material that didn't stick from the year before. Some schools are hiring tutors to cover review work, while others are just pushing ahead. There's this whole other approach that I've heard that's called acceleration. I've heard that some schools are not going back to teach the material that kids missed, but just pushing kids ahead. And so if a child missed their times tables, maybe they're given a cheat sheet of times tables and just told to like motor on, don't worry about the times tables. Barche also noted that learning loss at the student level has big implications for teachers who have tough jobs already. Now they have to juggle reviewing old material, teaching new material, handling students' mental health, and more. It's really exhausting to be a teacher right now. Students are having all kinds of anxiety and depression and behavioral outbursts. Plus, they have this gargantuan task of catching kids up, and it is exhausting. Between gun safety issues in schools, politics creeping into the classroom, and stagnant pay, many teachers are at their breaking point. So it kind of makes sense why you may have seen a headline recently about a teacher shortage in your area. Schools have been strapped to find new talent and keep the teachers they've already got. And some districts are definitely putting out an SOS. Public schools in Des Moines are offering retirement-age teachers $50,000 to stay in their roles through the upcoming school year. And further south in Texas, the Dallas Independent School District just set over $50 million for educator salary increases. Plus, they're upping starting wages across the system. While other states are taking more controversial steps to find teachers. In Florida, veterans with no prior experience are being tapped to teach. And in Arizona, college students who haven't finished their degrees yet can teach unsupervised in some cases if the district can't fill vacancies. But here's the thing. Nationwide, the data shows that teachers aren't necessarily leaving their field more now than they were before the pandemic. So what feels like a supply shortage is really due to a huge uptick in demand. In surveys, teachers say they're exhausted and they're burnt out. However, we're not seeing a higher rate of teachers leaving than usual. We are seeing a little bit of an uptick of teachers leaving, but it's completely in line with other economic business cycles. Whenever you have a strong job market and salaries go up across the board, teachers also get lured to become computer programmers and go into other fields. And we are seeing that now, but actually the uptick in teachers leaving the profession is no different than it was in 2007, which was another strong job market year. Some schools had dire shortages even before the pandemic. Rural schools for a long time have had a really hard time recruiting teachers because not everyone wants to live in a rural community. And low-income schools in the cities, they have very high turnover and have often have a hard time recruiting teachers. And they are continuing to have a hard time. It existed before the pandemic and it exists now and it's real. Part of what Barche is talking about is a historic decline in the number of teachers in this country. 
Back in 1970, around 200,000 people received an undergraduate education degree. And according to one analysis, that number has now shrunk to below 90,000 people a year. And on top of fewer people becoming teachers, a lot of current teachers are looking to get out. In a new survey from the National Education Association, more than half of educators said they're considering leaving the profession or retiring early. And the final factor at play here is that schools went on hiring sprees in recent years. The other thing that's happened with the pandemic is that schools have gotten $190 billion to spend. And some of them are using that to expand their teaching staffs. 90% of schools either have or are planning to expand the size of their teaching staffs. And so when you're hiring more teachers, that also makes it harder to hire teachers because there's only so many teachers to spread around. And so it's this feeling of a shortage, but it's kind of a misnomer because like, would you say there's a shortage of programmers if Google decided to suddenly double the number of computer programmers? Like, of course, it's harder to hire. You're asking for more. Now more than ever, teachers have tough jobs. And Barche noted there's one more thing that's really weighing on them. It's the politics around school. They find it exhausting to see what's going on at school board meetings and the screaming and the histrionics going on. That is really demoralizing teachers. And that is what's contributing to burnout and to future prospective teachers not entering the field. And we really need to do something to make the discourse about education more civil again. If you're a teacher or you've got kids about to head back to class, Call and leave us a voicemail at 929-266-4381. We want to know how you're thinking about the new school year. Before we go, we wanted to talk about one sport that's taking America by storm. And no, we're not talking about football. We're actually referencing pickleball, a racket sport that's kind of like a combo of tennis, badminton, and ping pong. Pickleball was invented not too long ago, back in 1965. And now, in 2022, it seems like everyone and their mother, literally, has picked up a racket and a wiffle ball and has started playing. You encounter as a reporter a lot of fan communities and a lot of people who are really excited about lots of different things. But the joy of this sport really touched me. That's Sarah Larson, a staff writer at The New Yorker, who did a deep dive on pickleball and why it's taking over cities and suburbs alike. She told us that besides the sport being pretty easy to play, natural athleticism is optional here, and relatively low maintenance, there's also a community element to pickleball that's really different than, say, tennis. It's a simple way of getting people moving and active and happy and connecting to one another. Everybody I interviewed talked about how they love playing it and it's challenging and fun, but accessible, but also they really just love meeting new people. I just think it brings people a lot of joy. I mean, everyone I've talked to 
at a pickleball, you know, recreational game or tournament or day of play in the city where everybody kind of meets up and plays. They're just giddy and they're sort of brimming with happiness and they can't wait to come back and do it the next morning. In fact, pickleball brings people together so much that one person even told Larson that pickleball could be the thing to save America and heal the country's divisions. That's a bold statement for sure. But according to Larson, it's not a crazy proposition. I think that under the right conditions, it can inspire people to call on their better selves a little bit in a way that sports don't always foster. Somebody was sort of rude to me about something pickleball related on Twitter, and I was really annoyed and it was unfair. And then I thought, I'm going to call on my pickleball part of myself as I respond to this. (laughs) And I'm not going to be rude about how unfair it was. Okay, if you're intrigued and haven't pickled yet yourself, here's some advice on how to get started. In terms of finding how and where to play, there are these great apps that connect players with one another everywhere. Like I was just in Vermont and I was playing with a bunch of nice people in a local place. I mean, this exists all over. And the culture still is quite friendly and people tend to be very encouraging. And even someone who doesn't know what they're doing can generally show up and be welcomed and taught how to play. But I think just, yeah, getting a cheap paddle and giving it a whirl is probably the best and then falling in love with it and then wanting to get better. That's the other thing that keeps people hooked. They're like, I know I can do much better at this, this slightly goofy, lovable sport. (laughs) I'm currently being beaten by my grandparents, but I can beat my grandparents, you know, that kind of thing. We'll leave a link to some of those apps in our show notes. Happy pickling. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday, but I'll be on vacation, so you'll be hearing the week's news from our producers, Blake and Will. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim, 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.